I also add my words of welcome to those given by Mr. Stewart. Um, we trust the Lord will be with us today. Bless those online also. And may the presence of God be around us each one. Can I just say to the congregation that this week the Reverend Stewart will be off. Uh, he's old a week, uh, his final week for this year. He didn't get it earlier. And uh, so he'll be off now from tomorrow. So do keep him and his wife and family in prayer. Could I also just uh, have my own words concerning the passing of uh, Mrs. McKendry's daughter-in-law, and then also the passing of her brother Fred, Fred Burns. We often think of Fred uh, in the sense of how he was a quiet, unassuming man who sat always down at the back there, but a man of prayer, a man who knew God, a man of great uh, mental ability. I often marveled when Fred prayed because Scripture just flowed out of him. And even he quoted from some of the books that he'd been reading, Puritans and Reformers and so on. And so he, he was a mighty man in that sense of things. And we, we missed him already. He has been out of the congregation now because of illness in nursing homes. But now his uh, sorrows, his pains, his trials are all over and he's with the Lord. So we value your prayers for tomorrow, for that funeral service that God will come and give great help. Thank you also for your prayers for Hillsborough. I was down there all week. Well, not staying down there, but up and down all week, uh, preaching every night. The Lord helped. I got the cold in the middle of it, but I was able to keep going, and the Lord gave help. And tonight I'll be in Dromore, and tomorrow night, just to let you know now, uh, there's a week there, and I'm doing two of the nights, so that might bring it to an end to some degree as regards uh, these weeks of meetings and so forth. And so we will turn to the Word of God. Before we do that, we will pray. Let's just unite our hearts in prayer, and then we'll come to God's Word. Heavenly Father, we bow before Thee in the name of Thy Son. We thank Thee that Thou art coming, Lord Jesus. We rejoice in that great truth. We look forward to that time. We do not know when it is, and we yet are assured that there will be that, that event, just as you came the first time. Thou wilt come the second time, and Lord, thou wilt come without sin unto salvation. Thou wilt come to not to bear sin, as that verse means, but to appear in all thy glory. And to shine forth in all of thy splendor. Lord, we look to thee as we turn again to Romans 11. Give us help in looking at this chapter. O Lord, we pray that thou wilt give wisdom and grace and power and the sense of thy nearness, even as we wait at thy feet. Abide with us now. Shut us in with God. Bring over the whole gathering a stillness that is born and generated by the Spirit. And we pray, Lord, that our hearts will be seized, and Thou wilt arrest our minds, and Thou wilt draw us out after Thee. Hear us, O God, we pray. We ask all this in Jesus' name, and for His sake, and for His glory. Amen. We turn again to Romans 11. I want to read in this chapter with you from verse 11. So please open your Bibles, and let us take up the reading there at verse number 11. And let us hear the Word of God. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. 
but rather through their fall salvation has come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. Now if the fall of them be the riches of the world and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office, if by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh, and might save some of them. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy, and if the root be holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches be broken off, and thou being a wild olive tree, wert grafted in among them, and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree, boast not against the branches. But if thou boast, thou, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Thou wilt say then, the branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief they were broken off, and thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear, for if God spared not the natural branches, take heed lest He also spare not thee. Behold therefore the goodness and severity of God on them which fell severity, but toward thee goodness, if thou continue in His goodness. Otherwise thou also shalt be cut off. And they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if thou wert cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and wert graft contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, which be the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, there shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. For as ye in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief, even so have these also now not believed that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief that He might have mercy upon all. And we'll end there. And we know God will bless the reading of His own Word. Now, following on from last Sunday morning, I want to, today to look with you at these verses that I have just read with you. The verses read form a section all of their own, really, that flows on from what Paul writes in verses 1 through to 10 of this chapter, verses which were under consideration in the message of last week. 
Let me quickly remind you of what we noted in that message. We noted two things in analyzing the first verses of the chapter. We noted the framework of Romans 11. It belongs to a framework that is comprised of three chapters, 9, 10, and 11. In those chapters, Paul writes with a twofold emphasis. First on national Israel. And we noticed in every chapter that there's a focusing in on the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In the second place, we noticed there's an emphasis on the doctrine of the grace of God. And we considered how in each chapter that doctrine of grace is underlined. Chapter 9, the plan of God's grace. Chapter 10, the proclamation of God's grace. Chapter 11, here there is the emphasis on God's grace, the, the program of God or the purpose of God's grace regarding the nation of Israel. And last week's message as well, we not only looked at the framework of chapter 11, but the focus that's in chapter 11. And that focus is on the present and the future positions, spiritually speaking, of the nation of Israel. The phrase in verse 1, His people in this context is used with reference to national Israel and their spiritual state before God. In relation to Israel, Paul then proceeds to lay stress on several major issues regarding national Israel that are all spiritual in nature, and we saw that there are three of them, and we considered them to some degree in the closing part of the, of the message last week. There's the issue of rejection, the issue of the remnant, and there's the issue of a restoration. Now, those same three issues arise again in the verses that I have read today. And so, at this point, I will not go into any further details about those issues that I have mentioned in these introductory remarks. The essence of them will actually emerge during our consideration of this section from verse 11 and onwards. It's only necessary to say at this point that in this passage, Paul continues to speak of national Israel and its spiritual condition throughout the New Testament age until it reaches its climax in the second coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And with all of those remarks, I want now to move immediately into this section from verse 11 onwards. And there are three points I want to bring to you in terms of analyzing this passage and setting it up so that you will see something I trust of what Paul is teaching down through the rest of Romans 11. First of all, we have a termination. In this passage, Paul reveals that the rejection of Israel as a community of people for their unbelief, unbelief toward Jesus Christ, will conclude their blindness or their hardness will end. It will come to a close. Therefore, there is a termination in view in these verses. Now, look at verse number 25. In that verse, Paul says, I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mercy, lest ye be, uh, should be wise in your own conceits. I'll just pause there for a moment and, and make a wee comment on those words. Because in that 
uh, part I've just read, you have the word mystery. And always keep in mind that in the New Testament, the word mystery is often used to signify that gospel doctrines don't find their origin in the mind of man, but in the revelation of God. So I say no more because I don't want to dwell on that, but just to make that comment on what the word mystery actually means. Now, in this verse 25, Paul states a mystery concerning which Christians are not to be in ignorance, or they're not to be unlearned concerning it. And they're not to be unlearned to prevent them from proudly concluding that their ideas about the future of Israel are correct. Now, there are many views about the future of Israel, and they all have to be measured up in the light of Scripture. And so Paul's issuing a warning there in verse 25. He says, don't be ignorant of this, don't be unlearned about this mystery that he's now going to show, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits. And there's a tendency among even Christians, and that's who's addressed here, for pride to come in and for arrogance to come in, and that idea, I know it all, I've got it all worked out, and every detail I can understand. Paul says, no, you mustn't go down that road. Now, here is what he's talking about when he refers to the mystery, that blindness, <coughs> excuse me, blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. It's in these words that there's a presentation of this matter of the termination of the rejection of Israel. And there are certain things I want you to notice in what Paul says there in verse 25. Notice with me that he makes it very, very clear that Israel's rejection, and this is their rejection for refusing Jesus Christ at that time when they did refuse Christ, when he was crucified. Israel's rejection is described as being partial. He says here in verse 25, blindness in part, blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. And so there is a spiritual blindness over the nation of Israel because of their unbelief toward Jesus Christ. But it's partial, and it's partial in terms of its extent and also in terms of its continuance. Now take, for example, and first of all, as I deal with this, that the rejection is described as partial. It's partial in terms of extent. It's not the entire nation that was blinded. And we saw that last week because that's proved by the salvation of a remnant. There's still, a, there's still a remnant of Jews being saved from the very days of Christ through the days of the apostles right on down to our day. So it's in part, it's not a blindness that is complete in terms of the whole nation. It's only part or partial. Look at verse 7. Why don't you go back now with me to verse number 7? And let's just look at that for a moment or two. It says, What then? Israel, he's been talking about the remnant, you see, and I showed you this last week, verse 5 and so forth. And then verse 7, what then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for. Those words must be understood. Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, which is a reference 
to all the efforts of the Jews to obtain righteousness with God through their own works. And they just did not succeed. And of course, no one will ever succeed in trying to be justified before God on the basis of their own works. So that's what part A of verse 7 means. But look with me at verse uh, 7 again, and notice uh, the, the part B, these words, but the election hath obtained it. And there again is the remnant, called this time the election. In other words, a number of people among the Jews in Paul's day who were among the elect of God, and they were being saved, and so they did obtain righteousness, but not through their own works, through Jesus Christ, in whom they believe. Then you go to part C of verse 7. It says, And the rest were blinded. The rest of who or whom? The rest of the nation. That's what he's been saying already in the first part of the chapter. So verse 7 is a very important verse. It teaches that judicial blindness came down on the Jewish nation apart from those who were the elect of God. It came down on the rest. So there, in terms of extent, is a a reference to the fact that while blindness came upon Israel, it was was only upon part of the nation. Yes, a, a huge part of the nation, but not on the nation as a whole. Now, as I said, these words must be understood in terms of continuance. I mean the words in in verse number 25, blindness in part, partial blindness is what it means, has happened to Israel. So in terms of extent, we've seen that. It's not the whole nation. There's a remnant being saved. Furthermore, with regard to continuance of it, it will not go on forever. That's also in view when he says in part. Now that is borne out. When you go now to verse number 11 with me, where I began to read, and we'll see how this is borne out here, that it's not going to continue forever. Look at verse 11, and there's another question. He says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. Now notice how similar those words are to the words of verse 1. He asked the very same kind of question in verse 1. Hath God cast away His people? God forbid. Now he asks the question in verse 11. It's very much the same. Have they stumbled that they fall? That they should fall? That means they're stumbling over Christ. Does that mean that they have fallen completely and there's no hope for them, this Jewish nation? Then he says, no, God forbid. And so... In verse 1, Paul makes it clear that Israel's rejection was not total. Now in verse 11, he's teaching that Israel's rejection was not final. Rejected by God at the very beginning when the Lord was on the earth, when the Lord died and the apostolic age unfolded, they weren't totally rejected. There was a remnant being saved and still being saved. But he's now saying in verse 11, now, this rejection in terms of its continuance is not only not total, but it is not final. That's what verse 11 is saying. Have they stumbled that they should fall? He's saying it's not final. And therefore, he is teaching that their rejection for their unbelief was not permanent. It was temporary. And that's what verse 25 is telling us. Look at it again. Read that verse over and over again. Blindness in part has happened to Israel until 
And we'll come back to that until something happens. And so, notice this. It is not either total or final, this matter of the rejection. It's partial. And then the point of termination is actually identified. In other words, there's a termination in the sense that one day this blindness of them as a people or as an identified nation is going to come to a close. And verse 25 tells you about that. So read verse 25. Blindness in part, partial blindness has happened to Israel until, until. And that tells you that it's going to come to an end, that there's a termination of it. And here is what he then says, until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. The fullness of the Gentiles, well, God's working among the Gentiles, isn't He? He's working at this moment among the Gentiles, largely speaking. There is a trickle, there is a remnant of Jews being saved today, still, in, in this world. The rest are in unbelief and darkness, a shroud over their minds. But one day that will end, and it's going to end when this happens, the fullness of the Gentiles is coming in, it will come in. Now, what is that fullness of the Gentiles? Turn, please, to Matthew 24, and look with me at verse 14. It's a very important statement in what the Lord is teaching in Matthew 24, because He's teaching on matters in relation to His coming. So, Matthew 24 and verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world, for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. And so that verse is very similar to this statement about blindness being on the nation of Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. You see, the Lord is building His church, and as He does so, He's calling out people from every nation. Why are the great missionary enterprises still very much alive? Why is it that across the world of today, people are going yet to tribes who have never heard the gospel? Why is that? Because what Christ says here must be fulfilled. And they go, and they learn the languages of the people. They, they get it down into Scripture, or they get the Scripture into those languages and so on. They're still laboring in this. God is still building His church, and He's drawing out a people from the Gentile world. He's bringing them in from the nations of the earth. And so what the Lord is showing us in Matthew 24, and what Paul's talking about here when he talks about the fullness of the Gentiles, is not that every Gentile without exception is ever going to be saved, but rather that the gospel in God's great enterprise of penetrating the nations with the gospel will come to a fullness. That's what the Lord says in Matthew 24, this gospel of the kingdom. That's, that's our gospel, I mean. That's what we believe. This gospel of the kingdom shall go to all nations. And then the end will come. And so, the blindness of Israel is going to terminate at a certain point. There's a termination here. There's a remnant still been saved. And that will come to a close. And then there will be a marvelous gathering in of Jews into the kingdom of God. Now, let's turn to 2 Corinthians 3 and tie in this verse because it's a very important verse. 2 Corinthians 3 verse number 14. And it says, 
Uh, and by the way, Paul is writing here specifically at this point about Israel. I'll just show you that. Look at 2 Corinthians 3, verse 13. It says, And not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. And you know the historical record, what it means there in verse 13. Remember that day when Moses went up the mount? Or in fact, he was up the mount for 40 days and 40 nights. And when he came back down, his face was shining. And he had a veil over his face because the children of Israel couldn't stand the dazzling glory that shone out of Moses' face. That's the historical incident in verse 13. But he mentions the children of Israel there. And then he takes, that, he takes that literal physical incident of Moses covering his face with a veil, and he uses it here now as a metaphor or a figure of speech. So look at verse 14. But their minds were blinded. For until this day remaineth the same veil, untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament. Now, it's on that remarkable language. Paul says in his day that as the Jews read the Old Testament, there was a veil over their minds. And they did read the Old Testament. And they're still reading the Old Testament. They won't read the New because they've rejected Christ. But they read the Old. Oh, tragically, they're still looking for the Messiah. They believe in the Messiah in the sense that they believe a great deliverer is supposed to come. But the problem is he's already come, the first time I mean. But they didn't believe it. And so there they are, they're reading the Old Testament and there's a veil over their minds. Let me say to you today, dear sinner, you're not much better. You Gentile sinners sitting in this house now or listening online, there's a veil over your mind too. Because you have not believed on Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So just take note of that. And I say that to you in love for your soul, that you might be awakened. Because that's what Paul is talking about here. Just look at this a bit more in 2 Corinthians 3. He says, their minds are blinded. Or were blinded. That's when they rejected the Lord and crucified Him. Until this day, Paul's writing some years now after the Lord's life and death and resurrection, and the same veils on their minds, even the reading of the Old Testament, because in the Old Testament, Jesus Christ is revealed. So he says the Old Testament. Then he says, which veil is done away in Christ? But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Now look at verse 16. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, who is signified there? When it shall turn to the Lord, it's the children of Israel as a nation. In the previous verses, they're still reading the Old Testament, the veil in their minds, but Paul says, this is actually a prophecy in verse 16, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. This verse makes it clear that there's a termination of the veil of darkness that continues over the nation of Israel apart from the remnant that is being saved. Now, with that in view, this matter of a termination, I want to move on. Please go back to Romans 11. And the next point I want to bring out of this chapter is a rejuvenation. 
a rejuvenation. Because down through this passage, Paul points to a day when Israel will experience spiritual rejuvenation. The termination of the spiritual blindness will be accompanied by a rejuvenation. In other words, a fresh, a most powerful burst of spiritual life. And the Apostle Paul presents this rejuvenation, as I call it, because I believe it is a good word to use. You know what? If you're rejuvenated, I tell you, it's like new life, isn't it? So I use the word in that sense. And that's exactly what we're going to see here. He presents this rejuvenation under different imagery. And I want you to see this, because this is imagery that actually reveals the tremendous work of grace that the Lord is yet going to do within Israel, among Israelites. He's going to do something, and it's brought before us here under various imageries that we find in these verses. There's the imagery of recovery. Look at verse 12, and what a striking verse this is. Paul says, Now at the fall of them, that's Israel, in the context you cannot see this any other way. Remember that. He's talking about Israel in this chapter to a tremendous degree. If the fall of them be the riches of the world, and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles. Then he says, how much more their fullness? For to provoke, sorry, how much more their fullness? Now, let's just pause with that verse and take our time here for a moment or two on it. The fall of them, that's the fall of the Jews, in the sense of they're rejected for their rejection of Christ. But Paul says something here that's remarkable. If the fall of them be the riches of the world. Then he says, the diminishing of them, the riches of the Gentiles. So, let me just try to help you with that. The fall of them be the riches of the world, the fall of, of uh, the, fall, the diminishing of them be the riches of the Gentiles. The world and the Gentiles, they're synonymous. He's talking about either, he's talking about the Gentile world, and he calls it one hand the world, the other hand the Gentiles. But what's the, what is the riches of the world? Well, it's simply this. Whenever the nation of Israel rejected Christ, God then said, I am now turning to the Gentiles. And you will find that in other New Testament passages. But just that's what he's saying here in verse 12. When the Jews fell into their unbelief and the veil came down and the darkness came down, it resulted in the riches of the world, because the gospel then went away from the Jews into all the nations of the earth. I tell you, in that first century, the apostles of the Lord did a mighty work in this world far more than we're even aware of. They went here, they went there, they went everywhere with the gospel. Do you understand that the apostle Paul got as far as the land of Spain? And it's firmly believed by some historians that the Apostle Paul set his foot in the British Isles. Now, I can't prove that, and I'm not going to be dogmatic on it, but I'm simply saying that Paul traveled immense distances. Never mind Thomas, who went to India, etc., etc. This is all on the records of those times. But what I'm simply saying is, when the Jews went into their darkness, 
the, the, the Gentiles benefited from that. It talks there about the, uh, the, the diminishing of them. What does that simply mean? It means that only a trickle were being saved, only a small remnant of the Jews. But it resulted, this diminishing of them in the riches of the Gentiles. And so, you'll notice then, before I go back to that verse, notice in verses 13 and 14 how Paul brings in his own ministry. For he says in verse number, 14, verse number 13, I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles. I magnify mine office. If by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh and might save some of them. Paul had a grasp of what was going on. And it's this. He's the apostle to the Gentiles, and he was mightily used among the Gentiles, but he couldn't forget his fellow countrymen. And therefore he longed that because he as a Jew was ministering among Gentiles, it would actually provoke some Jews, move them to jealousy under God's hand, to turn to Jesus Christ. That's what he means in verses 13 and 14. So I just say that for those are important terms that Paul uses. And you see, therefore, he saw his ministry in terms of reaching the Gentiles, a result of the blindness that had come over the nation of Israel. And other verses verify this. I'll just quote one of them to you. Acts 28, verse 28. And that's when Paul, first of all, or when he went first to Rome. And he's a prisoner in his own house. And people come to listen to him, and they're all Jews mainly at that stage, but they won't, most of them won't believe a word he's saying. You know what Paul said? Acts 28, verse 28. Be it known therefore unto you that the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles, and they will hear it. And I could bring other verses from Acts and here and there that make this clear. He did not mean again that God was finished with Israel or that the rejection was final. Because if you go back to Romans 11 and verse number 12, we haven't even focused on those last words of that verse. Listen to them. How much more their fullness. Whose fullness? The fullness of the work of grace that God was going to do in the future among the Jews. That's what he's talking about. My friend, we've got to interpret God's Word honestly. We cannot come to this chapter and say there are no Jews in it. Or there's nothing in Romans 11 about the nation of Israel. That would be totally dishonest. They're in this chapter. They are largely in it. They are dominantly in this chapter. And God is saying things here that you and I have got to recognize and accept that there's going to be a recovery. It talks about them falling. Then it talks about their fullness. And I see in that a recovery. If you fall, what do you want? You want to get back up and be recovered from your fall. So there's a recovery here, the image of the recovery. I must keep moving. Look at verse 15 now. And in that verse, there's the imagery of a reception. It says in verse 15, For the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world. What shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? And so there's the image here of reception. Paul expresses the same point as in verse 12. 
Only uh, now in different terms. He talks away about the casting away of them. Uh, he's simply referring to the fact that the Jews, largely speaking, had been cast away at those, in those days because of their refusal of Christ. But then he goes on to say something remarkable here. The casting away of the Jews brought about the reconciling of the world. Do you see that? God had a purpose. I want you to get a hold of this today. God had a purpose in the rejection of the Jews and their cast being cast away. And the purpose was, I'm going to leave the Jews now, but I'm not going to stop evangelizing. I'm not going to stop the gospel going forth. I'm going to go to the world because Christ came into this world or into the midst of humanity to save a people from all nations and Paul is talking about this. He's signifying in these words the reconciling of the world. He's signifying the conversion of multitudes of Gentiles throughout time. And then there's the application of what he says there in verse 15. The first part is that the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, benefiting the world. What shall the receiving of them be? Do you see that? The receiving of who? You must ask yourself questions as you read the Bible. Who is going to be received? It can't be the Gentiles, for they are being received. It is the Jew again. What will the receiving of them be, he says in verse 15, but life from the dead. Life from the dead. Now, that expression, life from the dead, does not indicate a physical resurrection, by the way, but a passing from death onto life in a spiritual sense. And that, of course, is what happens no matter who God saves. We pass from death onto life. And so the reception spoken of here is the reception of multitudes of Jews into God's kingdom, an event that will be of a tremendous blessing to the whole world. It will be like life from the dead when it comes. So that's the second image that he uses. There is here very clearly this matter of a recovery. And then in verse 15, a matter of a reception. Now we go to verses 16 through to 24. And, and please understand, and you will appreciate this, I cannot go into every detail here, but I'm trying to give you the broad picture, and it's a very exciting and blessed picture. In those verses, 16 to 24, we have the imagery of regrafting. Regrafting. In this section, Paul mainly focuses on that imagery of, of regrafting into what he calls the olive tree. Now, if you think about something being regrafted, and by the way, this is unusual. We use the word a graft or grafting something, and I've never done that. I haven't the faintest idea of what you do. Uh, maybe a wee bit, but that doesn't matter. But I'm saying we're, we're all aware of it. You get a slip of something else, and you put it onto a plant, and you tie it round, and, and it becomes part of that plant. Uh, I hope I'm right in what I say there. But anyhow, what he's talking about here is not, as far as the Jews are concerned, not something new, but the branches that were previously cut off are going to be regrafted into what's called the olive tree. 
And that is something altogether different. And something that is really, really remarkable. Now that presupposes a cutting off. And you will see that. Verse 17a, if some of the branches be broken off. Verse 19a, thou wilt say then, the branches were broken off. Verse 20, part A, because of unbelief they were broken off. Verse 21, again, God spared not the natural branches. He's talking there the whole way down those four verses about the Jewish nation being broken off. But now he's telling us in these verses that the day will come or the time will come when they're going to be regrafted. Now notice once again that through the cutting off of the natural branches, Gentiles something new were grafted in. Look at verse 17. If some of the branches be broken off, listen, listen sinner today to this. Listen Christian to this. And thou being a wild olive tree, he's talking to Gentile Christians here, wert graft in among them, and with them partakest of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. And so Israel's cutting off brought about the grafting in of Gentiles. Remember, this is another image that he's using here, or imagery. As the Gentiles are described as a wild olive tree, and they're grafted into the church of God because that's what's meant by the olive tree. It says, partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree. Notice a single olive tree is in view there. What's it describing? When you think about it carefully, it's describing here that taking the Old and the New Testament ages, there only ever has been one church of God, one united church of God, and it's called the olive tree. And there came a day because of their unbelief and the rejection of the Savior when the Jewish nation, among whom God had been working for hundreds of years, whom He had blessed for hundreds of years, were left in their blindness. And He turned away from them. But you see, because He turned away from them, He turned to the Gentile world to graft Gentiles into not some different body, but into the olive tree the church of God that always had existed down through the generations. And it says in verse 17 that these Gentiles, this wild olive tree, the Gentile world, uh, brought in, grafted in uh, to the one olive tree, become partakers of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. What is that, the root and the fatness of the olive tree? It's a reference to the gospel blessings and benefits that God's church had always enjoyed from the time that God began to save souls after the fall. The root and the fatness, those are, again, figurative terms. You think about an olive tree and it produces olive oil. And so there's a root there and the tree's growing and then there comes the fatness. That's the oil that the tree produces. And this is all symbolic, you see, of the gospel. It's blessings, it's benefits, redemption through Jesus Christ, union with the Lord's in view here. If you're grafted into something, you become part of it. You are united with that. And so Paul is saying to these Gentiles, remember this, the church in Rome to whom he writes is primarily a Gentile church. And he's telling them, you've been grafted in 
or as a result of the falling away or the, uh, the casting away of the Jews. And so they are grafted in. But what he goes on to show is there will be a regrafting of the natural branches. Look at verse 18. It says, Well, sorry, boast not against the branches, but if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. I just want to pause and say something here. Verse 18, when you really think about it, is a warning. And the Lord is warning Gentile people who are within the professing Christian church against adopting an anti-Semitic spirit. That's what he's saying there. And you know, that does happen. There are people, wherever they may be or whatever they claim to be, who would call themselves Christians and they adopt an anti-Semitic spirit. In other words, they're against the Jews. Paul says here, don't do that. It's all I have time to say this morning, but I think it's relevant in the light of where we are in our world today. But anyhow, if you read through from verse 18 onwards, you will find, uh, he says in verse, eight, verse 19, Thou wilt say then the branches were broken off that I might be grafted, and that's true. The Jewish branches were broken off. The Gentiles were brought in. Paul then says, Well, because of unbelief they were broken off, and thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. Still giving the warning. Be not high-minded, but fear. Don't be proud of the fact that you're a Christian and the Jew up the road isn't. Don't look down on him. Because you might fall. You might be cast away. If you apostatize from Christ, you certainly will be cast away. And isn't it true, brethren and sisters, that down through the centuries, church bodies, one after the other, have suffered the very same fate because they came to a point where they rejected the Lord. They rejected the deity of the Lord and the blood of the Lord and so on, and God just cast them away. There are no Gentile peoples who are not exempt from this happening to them if they profess to be Christian. And so Paul utters a very serious warning down those verses. However, look at verse 23. And they also, the Jews, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be graft in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if thou wert cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and wert graft contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, which be the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? So here's the imagery of grafting coming to a peak in Paul's discussion or writing here. And what he's saying is that just as the Gentiles, by following Israel into unbelief, may be cut off, and that can happen, so Israel, following the Gentiles into faith in Jesus Christ, may be grafted, regrafted into their own olive tree. Brothers and sisters, there is a future for Israel, spiritually speaking. Israel, as a people, I'm not saying every last one of them, but as a people they were cast off. Because remember, God did cast them off as a people, but He kept saving a remnant. 
Now he's saying, the day will come and will be a great ingathering. But he's not saying every last Jew. Any more than the coming in of the Gentiles into the good olive means that every Gentile is saved without exception. No, it doesn't. So you've got to keep the, the, the way of interpreting this chapter sane and sensible. But he is saying that there's a future for Israel. It's a gospel future. And that brings me to my final point here. We've looked at determination, and we've looked, what did I call my second point, a rejuvenation, and now the final point is a culmination. Verse 26, And so all Israel shall be saved. These words signify a culmination of gospel blessing for Israel. Israel, as throughout the context, and that's what it says here, all Israel shall be saved, must be the Jewish people. The phrase, all Israel, well, that's the one that causes all commentators problems. What does it mean? Well, let me just say this to you. All Israel being saved doesn't mean, I've already said it, doesn't mean that every member of the Jewish nation will be saved. Rather, it means that just as Israel as a people are presently rejected and yet continue to see a remnant saved, so Israel as a people will be restored to divine favor and a mighty work will be done in them even though not every last one of them will be saved. That's how we understand those words. But what I want you to see, especially because all Israel shall be saved, that's the big point of debate. And I've given you what I believe it means. What I want you to see here is this. This this culmination will be a Christ-centered matter. Look at verse 26, part B. It says, so I'll read the whole thing. So Israel shall be saved, or all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, there shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Where do you find those words? Because they are a quotation. Paul says that, as it is written. Do you know where they're found, Christian? They're found in Isaiah 59, 19 to 21. And you know that great passage that we often quote in prayer, and we often, it's often preached on, when the enemy shall come in like a flood. The Spirit of the Lord shall raise up a standard against them. And we can use that generally, and we do. But my dear friend, we've got to be honest again with Isaiah 59. I want you to look at it. Isaiah 59, and so verse 19 says, When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. Then it says, And the Redeemer shall come to Zion, and unto them that turn from transgression, to transgression in Jacob. And so you see what's going on here? Isaiah 59 is a prophecy. Yes, it can be taken generally for any day in a sense, but it specifically, because Paul uses it here, it specifically has to do with this whole issue of the culmination that we're talking about. That's why I'm saying it's a Christ-centered culmination, because the Spirit will be poured out and there will be a turning to Christ. That's all I'm going to say in that. There's a lot more there that could be said, but time is nearly gone. In other words, Christ by His Spirit will culminate His work within Israel with their conversion from sin. Isn't that the way He always works? This is a a very important little detail. I will say this. 
And I said this before, and there's a danger here among Christians. And what I want to say is this. No Jew goes to heaven because he is a Jew. There are people foolish enough to think that. Oh, oh they're, they're God's special people. I understand what they're trying to say, but once you go down the road of saying, because they were the chosen people for whom the Messiah would come, that gives them a kind of a passport to glory, no matter how they live. That's not true, friends. Except a man, Jew or Gentile, is born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. So because people are Jews does not give them a right to heaven. Any more than being a free Presbyterian, well, we're nothing <laughs> anyway, but any more than being a free Presbyterian gives you a right to go to heaven or whatever church you care to mention or any religion you care to mention. There's no right given to people because of their identification to go to heaven. No. This is a Christ-centered thing. The Spirit is poured out. The Redeemer's in view. And they turn to Christ. So it's a Christ-centered culmination. It's also a covenant-centered culmination. Please look at Romans 11 as we come to the end here just about. Romans 11, verse 27. It says, For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. Let me just say to you, there is only one covenant revealed in the Bible on the basis of which sins are taken away, and that's the covenant of redemption and grace. And it's on that basis or on the ground of that covenant that the Gentiles are saved. And now we've been shown it's on the basis of that covenant that Jews are saved. Or this whole matter that we're looking at here will come to pass. It's a covenant-centered work. It goes on to say in verse 28, as concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. That simply means the Jews refuse Christ and therefore they're cut off. Then it says, but as touching the election, he comes back to the doctrine of election as he has done right down through this chapter. My dear friend, I don't know how you think about that doctrine, but I'll tell you one thing, you can't read the Bible and not see it in there. It's everywhere down this chapter. A remnant according to the election of grace. And it keeps coming up. And now it comes up again. As touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. And here's a wonderful statement. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. What God has covenanted to do and it's specifically here to do with the Jew, the future of the Jew. He is, he is going to fulfill it. It's going to come to pass. I said to you last week, the terrorists of today, Hamas, have said publicly that they're not going to stop until they exterminate the Jews. It is not going to happen. Because God says, I'm going to gather in a huge multitude. That's really what he's saying. And that's going to happen. Because he has covenanted to do it. This is not about the past. It's about the future. He's going to do it. And having covenanted to do it, 
it will take place. And what blessing. Do you not want this? Do you not long for the day when God will work among that nation? Just as much as we would long for God to work in any nation. Move among those people who are still suffering the consequences of their, of their rejection of the Lord. But God, God one day says, I'm going to do this. It'll all come to a culmination and I will gather them in. And what a wonderful work that will be. My friend, it's a message to you who sit here among us not saved. You know what the Lord says in, in uh, Matthew, Matthew 8? He talks to those in his day who were rejecting him, and they, they, they were Jews. But you know what he said to them? He talked about his coming again. He said, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, sitting down in the kingdom of heaven, and many coming from the north and the south and the east and the west and sitting down with them in the kingdom of heaven. But you yourselves cast out. I know that had to do with the Jews being cast out. But let's turn it around. The day will come when the Lord will arrive and all that will then happen will happen. And he will sit down in that kingdom, that eternal kingdom of glory, and at the table will be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and multitudes from across the earth. But will you be there? That's the vital thing to a great degree. Will you be there? Or will you be missing? Let us bow in prayer. Quietly, reverently, just bow before the Lord. Lord, we pray that Thy Spirit will use Thy Word. Pray that He will bring it home with power, that He will bless it to all hearts. Lord, help us to see the truths of this chapter and help us to take them in prayer and lay hold on God for those of that nation yet in blindness that soon the Redeemer will come and the Spirit will be poured out, and a great gathering in will take place. Lord, remember Thy covenant, and remember the sufferings of Thy Son, and hear prayer for His sake and for His glory. We pray in His name and for His eternal praise. Amen.